good day. If you got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12. Okay, Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be in a couple of places. You can go to Exodus 12. Okay, and then uh, you can go to Matthew 21. And between the two, uh, you should be uh, you should be doing pretty good. Okay, it should be really kind of uh, kind of right on uh, right on target. So as you think about uh, as you think about this this thought today, as I wanted to, I thought about a new series. I, I've been wanting to share this this thought with you. Basically, it it's the last week of Jesus' life. Um, starts with the triumphal entry or the triumphant entry. Either one works. And, uh, and it ends with, obviously, the resurrection. And there's that week of time that really encapsulates what Jesus came to do. I wear you out with that. I'm going to keep doing it, by the way. All right? I wear you out with the gospel is made up of two components, who Jesus is and what he came to do, which is the title of this series. I thought it was appropriate. And so uh, at Christmas time, we talked about who Jesus is, we, we, and I entitled it Simply Christmas. This one we're going to talk about in majority. We're still going to talk about who he is, but the majority of it's going to be what he came to do. I'm convinced, and I have a passion for people to understand. I went to church all my life and never picked up on other than just a bunch of stories. I never picked up on that the, the Bible had a point, the Bible had a message, and it had a unity about it that was pretty remarkable. And so I'm going to share that over the next weeks. Uh, I want you to know that we're going to take a bigger picture as opposed to smaller snapshots. So I'm going to be flying through a lot of things uh, because I want you to see a bigger picture. And so I'll be flying through things that need more time and more explanation, right? But I'm just going, because I, again, I, I, want to, I want to sacrifice that so you can see a bigger picture. So, so as we take a look at this, this passion week, as it's commonly known, the word passion means to suffer. Okay, that's all the word passion means. Uh, obviously, it means it means by a lot of other things now. But but when you think of passion, the word passion means to suffer. Therefore, it has it has morphed into a word that things that are so important to you, you're willing to suffer for them. That's really what the word passion. So when they say the Passion Week, that is the week of Christ's suffering, is what they're saying there. So I want to uh, I want to do that now. Let me just share this with you. Um, I just, I just, I've, I've prayed for you today because I want you to, I want you to see these things. These will be things that you've probably seen before. If you haven't, then you'll get to see them with fresh eyes. But I'm praying that everybody will see them with fresh eyes because there's, there's enough here in its simplicity. It has great, has great power to it. So when you're understanding who Jesus is, when you're understanding what he came to do, uh, so much of understanding this last week of Jesus' life is you have to get a firm, a firm handle on the Passover. Passover is hugely important to understand what Jesus came to do. Even though it happened a couple of thousand years before Jesus was ever born, yet God was writing a story so that you could see it and understand it for those of you who have ears to see, for those of you who have, excuse me, ears to hear, eyes to see. For those of you that have those things, then, then you, can, you can see and understand it. Uh, and so, so as we understand the Passover, in fact, I'm just going to begin this week. We're going to talk about Passover next week. We're going to do 
the Lord's Supper communion. You know, a lot of times people don't even realize, uh, Christians don't even realize that the Lord's Supper communion, you know, the bread and the cup, is that those, I mean, Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper. Well, what was the Last Supper? It was Passover. The time of Jesus' last week was Passover. It was all had its symbolisms in Passover. God was doing something incredible through Passover, but it was going to be a picture of something much bigger. So we're going to kind of kick this off this week. Next week, we'll kind of finish up the the Passover thought, but I wanted to take a couple of weeks, and then next week we'll actually we'll actually celebrate it together. But you'll get a real good understanding next week because it is a it is a remarkable thing how God has put this together. But the thing you have to remember is that two thousand years before Jesus was born is when Passover took place, and then you have two thousand years. It was Jesus. Two thousand years is where about where we are right now. So it's a pretty amazing thing when you begin to put it all together. So today's title is what I'm going to call presentation and examination. Now don't let that don't let that title it'll make perfect sense why I've entitled it that when we get to the end. But just hang with me here and I want you to see here what this picture looks like. Let's look at what happened at Passover first. Look at Exodus chapter 12 verse 1. Now this is what happened. I want you to understand that the that Israel had been enslaved to the Egyptians for 430, 20, 30 years. You know, none of them had ever known anything but slavery. But God had promised to deliver them from their slavery. Imagine being enslaved, a a nation being enslaved for twice as long, just about twice as long as we've been a country. I mean, it's pretty remarkable to think about. And so when you think about, when you put that, when you put that all together, um, and, and understanding this, this slavery, God had promised to deliver them. And so God had promised them a deliverer. It became known as a Messiah, an anointed one, an empowered one who's sent with a purpose. That's what, and, the, and then the Greek equivalent to Messiah, Messiah is a Hebrew word, the, the Greek equivalent is Christ. So Messiah and Christ are the same word. But it means one who is sent with the, with the you know, with the, with the direction, with the, with the mission. Okay, And so this is what happened. So Moses, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this was going to be the last plague. This is the one thing that God was going to do through Moses, the deliverer, that was going to set the people free from their slavery. And for those of you who have ears to hear, this is a, this is a parallel you need to pick up on. It's going to make everything that we're going to do the next few weeks uh, will be kind of like an aha moment. It's like, ah, well, that makes sense. I've always known that, but I never knew, I never knew how it fit. And so, so anyway, this is what God says. So I'm about to do something. I'm about to do something here. That's what he told Moses. Look what it says there. It says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. In fact, God says, I'm doing something so significant here that I'm going to change the calendar. Can you imagine me standing up and say, hey, guys, I got a great idea today. Let's make today January 1st. All right, well, that's what's happening. God's resetting the calendar to center it around Passover. Anybody want to know what our calendar now is set around? Jesus' birth. I find that ironic. Maybe not so much. So when you put all those things, again, just keep tracking with me. It's 
It's really incredible to start thinking about. So God says this is going to be the beginning for you. It's going to be, we're going to center this around this, this thing that's about to happen. And it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month that every man shall take a lamb according to, you know, according to the number of uh, families in his houses and a lamb for a household. And if you don't have enough, uh, if you don't have a household that's too small, then get the nearest neighbor, y'all get together. Whatever it takes that you're to celebrate this, this, this thought. So, so, you know, basically she'll take according to each man can eat, that kind of a thing. Now, here's verse five that I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna clue you in on. And again, I want you to see the symbolisms. And again, these are 2,000 years before Jesus even came. I want you to say is that your lamb shall be, the Passover lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish. That means no deformities, no anything, okay? A male the first year, that is, it's to be perfect. And that you may take, and what you do after you find the perfect one, you make a choice and you separate it from all the other sheep and the goats. So it's you, you are to single it out and then look what else it says to do, right? And then you shall keep it until the 14th day. Keep it, watch it from 10th day to the 14th day. So there's a time of examination to make sure it truly is perfect. Does that make sense? And they watched them to make sure because it was to be their best. It was to be, it was to be the perfect lamb. And if you remember when John the Baptist looked up and Jesus was coming toward him, if you remember what John the Baptist said, John the Baptist looked up and said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you, again, you're picking up on, on the symbolism of, of the lamb here and the picture that goes, that goes with it. Because what was going to happen in the, and so what they did was they kept it the 14th day and then, and then the entire nation um, slaughtered the animals at once and then they cooked them for the meal and then the blood went on the door, right, if you remember. And you have this picture that the lamb, because of the lamb, because of the perfect lamb and the life that was given, it protected everyone who was inside of that house that had the blood on the door. So as you're understanding and seeing the parallel of it, it's remarkable that you need to remember and understand in trying to understand this whole crucifixion, because I can't tell you how many people in our culture now, because there's so much ignorance about who Christ is now. And what most people know about who Christ is is what they hear other people say anyway. That's why I like to share just what it says, okay? Not what I think, not what Baptist, Methodist, Catholic things. It's just what does it say? And as you look at it, 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 is, pretty, it is pretty remarkable. And so this picture of presentation and examination, you'll see what I'm saying. To present something is to offer it, is to give it is to introduce it, however you want to say it, which is what we come to now. Number one is presentation. And I know I'm gonna go through these things quickly. Again, I could do, uh, just let me go ahead and say this now so I don't have to say it again, right? Every one of these that I'm going to do, I could take a whole week and do it just on that. But it's a smaller look, which is not, that's not bad. There's a deep look that's really pretty cool to look at. 
But I want you to see the bigger picture, not just a little piece of the picture. I want you to see the bigger picture that that God is drawing here. And that's why I'm going to go fast today. So where we're going to start with is that is Jesus is that what we call the triumphal entry. And what that means is, and that's why, you know, Palm Sunday and people people know that what's Palm Sunday? I don't know, but in church we all wave palm. I mean, they don't have a clue as to why, but they just know that's what we do. You know, there are even some people that save the palms and they burn them and put them on their forehead and stuff like that. I'm not sure where any of that comes from. I mean, I'm trying to be ugly here. I'm just trying to tell you when 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 legend becomes the truth, when tradition becomes the truth, you can't even separate why you do things from what they mean. That makes sense, right? And so so again, I just want you just to see what this looks like. Matthew chapter presentation. What I mean by presentation, this is God himself choosing and presenting his lamb, right? The choice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So it becomes a presentation at the Passover time of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in the symbolism, okay? Look at verse one. It says, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, um, they... uh, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Uh, they sent two of, uh, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. And then they took, uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal uh, of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as the Jesus had directed them. Now, you see where at verse 5 says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, uh, mounted on a donkey. That's a direct quote from Zechariah, okay? Zechariah was written around, in the Old Testament, it was written around 450, 450 480 years before Jesus was born. But that's how you know, because God was already telling this story. This is how you're going to know that it's him. Again, in Zechariah, go ahead and put Zechariah 9, 9 up there. It's almost exactly the same. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Okay? Um, is it, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. That's pretty interesting, huh? And he's going to be mounted or riding on a donkey. It says here on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 450 years, again, there's, there's tons of these in the Old Testament. And they all point to this point in time with who Jesus is and what he came to do, especially at this point of what he came to do. So Jesus is riding in on the back of, on the back of, a, of a donkey, really a colt of a donkey. It's pretty interesting. All right, let's take a look at it. Let's continue to read. They brought him, uh, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put, on them on, uh, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, uh, ones before him and that followed him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna, what does, what does Hosanna mean? Well, Hosanna just means save us. Jose, Hosea, Hosea, Joshua, Joshua. It all says the same thing. 
Therefore, the whole HOS part is, is save or salvation. The Anna part is just to us. So salvation to us, save us, whatever you want to say, that's all that it means. So most time people, you know, we sing it, you know, we just sang it. You know, Hosanna, Hosanna, what does that mean? It just means save us is all that it means. So it basically says, Hosanna to the son of David. What this is saying, save us the Messiah. The son of David was just a term that was used for the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who was to come like Moses. Okay? Hosanna to the son of David. The best, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us in the highest. All right? Salvation is ours in the highest. That kind of thing. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole town was astir. They're all asking, you know, who is this? And the crowds are saying, this is the, this is the prophet Jesus, you know, comes from Nazareth and Galilee. Rejoice so greatly, daughter of Zion. This is the Zechariah 9-9 part. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. So you have then this picture. I've actually been to this place. It's a pretty authentic place. There's the east gate there in Jerusalem, which Jesus rode through. It is sealed now. Uh, in fact, um, in fact, Islam sealed it many, many hundreds of years ago when they, or over 100 years ago, because it is said that Jesus will return through that same gate. It's all pretty cool when you look at it. So they sealed it thinking that would somehow stop it, but it's not going to stop it, right? But, I mean, seriously, I've been there. It's sealed. You can't get in or out of it. But, but obviously, Jesus rode down from the Mount of Olives, down the, down the valley, up and into the city, and all the while, I mean, it's, it's a great visual. Uh, it, and I've been there to see it. It's not as far as you would think. And, um, and obviously, it's, it's basically an entrance. It's a presentation. Does that make sense? That's why I called today presentation examination. It's a presentation. But I think it's interesting. If you want to make an impression, when you're making an entrance, if you want to make an impression, a donkey's not the best way to do it. The Bible says he was going to, but a donkey is, is more of a humble look. If you want to make an impression at that time, you ride in on a white horse. Right? Big, muscular, beautiful. I've never heard anyone call a donkey beautiful. Does that make sense? Lots of times you see a beautiful, oh, beautiful horse, but never have you heard beautiful donkey. Right? So if you want to make an entrance, the donkey's not it. But the entrance here is not for impressive sake. It's humility, it's salvation, it's servant. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like today. If you want to make an entrance coming into town, uh, don't ride in on a, on a Volkswagen Bug. Does that make sense? It's a fine car. I mean, I had a Carmen Ghia when I was, when I was young, young, if y'all remember those. So I'm not, I'm not against VWs. Don't send me a letter. But if you want to make an entrance, get a Ferrari, an Aston Martin, right, or something like that and come blowing into town, and you will get an entrance. But remember this. But God was presenting him, not so much in pomp and circumstance, but in presentation as a sacrifice, which is pretty interesting. Look, i got to stop. I can't tell. I told you, every one of these I could do its own one. But I wanted you to see the presentation part. Number two is the examination. Well, what happens during those, from day 10 to day 14? It's watched. The Passover land is watched to see if it truly is perfect. 
Well, you have the same picture here. If you're charting along, this may sound that even if you're a believer for a long time, you've never truly seen. And so you have this picture of these four days, this examination time. And Jesus went through that examination time, and he was asked a series of questions. He blew into, he blew into town, and after you know, he gets off the, off the donkey, you know, and he goes in and, and whatever. The first thing he does is that he blows through the, the, the tables of the money changers. I mean, Jesus, in anger, said that, said that you've just made this a den of thieves. And what he's talking about, uh, with the Passover, it was the time of Passover, so the, they were selling lambs. In fact, it was a racket. This whole Passover thing was a racket at that time where the priests who were kind of in charge uh, of everything, especially the high priests, they would say that, you know, if you really want the best lamb, the right lamb, the whatever lamb, you know, then you need to buy that from us and, and uh, no other lambs are going to be accepted. And, and, and so obviously there was a huge market and huge, you know, kind of a huge uh, uptick in the price for their lambs. But then they wouldn't allow you to pay them in Roman money. You had to have Hebrew money. Well, Hebrew money wasn't in circulation. So you had to go to the money changer's desk to trade your Roman money for Hebrew money so then you could go buy the lamb. So you got a double cut. Does it, you see the racket that's going on here? That's why Jesus was upset. There's been more money made on religious stuff just turns my stomach, and obviously it turns Jesus' stomach. It's just a racket. Well, here's the racket, same racket. Jesus got upset. A time of Passover when people are to be understanding God's salvation for them, they've made it a, a den of thieves. So Jesus upset goes in, and he starts tearing through everything. I think it's pretty interesting to look at. I'd love to spend more time here, but Obviously, in your mind, I want your imagination to think of animals running everywhere, coins rolling everywhere, people diving on the coins and grabbing them and stuffing them in their pockets, and then you get a pretty good picture of the chaos uh, that happened there. Well, not long after this, take a look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, and when he entered the temple, that is, after he'd turned over the money changers. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. Now, remember, if you really want to tick someone off, you mess with their bank account. Does that make sense? Slap their spouse, they're fine with it. But don't mess. Don't mess with my bank account. Why? Because I'll be honest with you. You have to be your own judge. I'll be honest with you. I think most people's God in their life is their finances. God little g. Well, because that's what they get the most upset about. Well, let me tell you who was profiting most by this whole scheme. It was the chief priests and the elders. They were the ones making the money off of the money changers and the lambs. So Jesus went in and messed that one up. So you can imagine they're not real happy. Okay? They don't care a hang about Passover. They don't care a hang about honoring God. All they care about is how, what's the final take. And so they're upset and so they come to Jesus, and here's what they say. And they came up to him as, as he was teaching and said, and this is what they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave that authority to you? And what gives you the right 
to tell us what we're doing is wrong. You ever heard that before? So when you look at this, this is really interesting. First question. It's an authority question. Jesus, who are you? Or at least who do you think you are? All right. Interesting. So anyway, what happens? Okay, well, Jesus, Jesus answers them. First question, there are five of these, by the way, and we're going to have to blow through them pretty quick. But there's one that this first question about what authority do you do this? And he says basically, I'm going to ask you a question. These are the chief priests. This is not just the normal priests. These are the chief priests and the elders. So we're talking about those who are the highest on the social order and economic order uh, of their day. And they're profiting from this. And so they're asking Jesus, where do you, you know, by what authority do you do this and who gave that authority to you that you could do that? And he answers and says, listen, I'll, I'll tell you if you all answer me a question. I'm going to ask you, right? And here's the question that Jesus is going to ask them. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? In other words, John the Baptist and who he was and his teaching and all that he did, did that come from God or was that just simply John's invention? Now, it put them in a real bind because I have found that people who aren't sincere You'll understand when I say this, because it's made tough to hear, but people who aren't sincere, they're not going to tell you what they think the truth is. They're going to tell you what they think other people want to hear, or they're going to lie to make, it, make them look good. Isn't that interesting how that works? It's called hypocrisy. It's in all of us, by the way. I hate to admit it, but it's a little bit in all of us, maybe a lot of in some of us. I don't know. I'm making that judgment call. So what did they do? Right? They got around to discuss, okay, and how are we going to answer Jesus? Because there's a lot of people here that are listening. How are we going to answer Jesus when he says this? Okay. And here's what they said to themselves. If we, if we say that John and his teaching were from heaven, that is from above, he's going to say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Right? But if we say it's from man, here we go, here's the hypocrisy of it, which is what they believe. But they can't admit to what they believe because, because why? because they were afraid of the people. Because the people considered John the Baptist a prophet. And so they would, they would have lost favor. They would have lost potential to make more money. They would, so they're, they're, they're basically, if we answer this, they're not answering according to the truth. They're answering hypocritically, right? This is interesting here. So they answered, it's a great politician's answer. We don't know. Or my favorite one is, I don't recall. All right? All right, here we go. So we do not know. We don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you about what authority I do these things in. All right? And then he tells a parable. Here's the context of it. These are hard things to hear because it makes us take a look at ourselves. And he tells a parable. It's a two-verse parable, maybe three. And it's about the situation that ju they just went through. And look what Jesus said here. What do you think? He's asking all of them. What do you think? A, a man had two sons. And he, he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard or go work on the land. Okay? And the son replied and says, I'm not going. But then later, later, you see where it says changed his mind? 
That's just a rendering of what the word repent means. If you want to know what the word repent means, it just means to change your mind. And changing your mind means changing your direction. It means changing what you do. Some people have tried to make repentance have nothing to do with actions, and I totally disagree. Because what good is it it if you change your mind, but it doesn't change what you do? I don't think you've changed your mind, to be honest with you. Anyway, but the word change your mind, that's that's all the word repentance means. It, is made so, it's, it has been made to be such a spiritual, religious word that it's lost its definition, but that's all it means. So I will not, but later he repented or changed his mind and he went. He said to the second son, hey, go work in my vineyard today. And, then, and he says, okay, dad, yes, sir, going. And he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Then they all said the first. This is when Jesus really, really, really gets tough on them. He said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to make it into the kingdom of God before you do. He's talking to the chief priests and the elders. He's saying the prostitutes make it to heaven before you will. Okay, are you getting that? He's not winning friends and influencing people here. Jesus is not. But he was exposing the hypocrisy. Jesus had his greatest problems from those who were religious leaders and religious. That's why I've told people down through the years, I'm not a religious person. I I just am not. I I don't think of my religion or what I do is what makes me right with him. I just, I just don't. I just don't because it was religious people that were the ones that never would accept what Jesus told them, right? I don't know. John, when he went on to say that John the Baptist came to you, right, uh, in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. I'm here to tell you, that's the first son. Rebellious, I'm not going to do it. He didn't look real good. But in the end, he or she did what they were supposed to do. The one who has the the great mouth game, you know what I mean? Going, Dad, yes, sir. Oh, he looks great. She looks great. But Jesus said, they're only words. Talking a good game. We used to have that when I played ball. I never worried about the guy who talked a big game. Because those who could play the game of football didn't have to talk. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The ones who had to talk about it all the time usually weren't doing it. Not always. There was always some big mouse that had pretty talent, good talent too. But by and large, most, most who talked didn't do. That's why they have to talk. That's what Jesus means by this when he's talking about these chief priests and these elders. I don't know, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's pretty powerful stuff. I kind of got to move on. I got to move on. As I like to say, you need to be listening faster here or we're not going to make it. All right. Number two, taxes. Now we go to a political question. The quickest way to mess someone up, the quickest way to be able to accuse, we see it every day. The quickest way to be able to accuse someone is to get them uh, involved in a political discussion. All right. And that's what happens here. 
Okay? The Pharisees, chapter 22, verse 15, the Pharisees went and they plotted about how they might entangle Jesus with, with their words. And this is what they said. They sent disciples to Jesus. And along with the Herodians, now the Herodians, you have to remember the Pharisees were a religious sect. The Sadducees, we'll talk about them in a minute, they were a religious sect. But the Herodians, they were more of a political sect. Herod was the king. Um, Caesar was the ultimate ruler, but Herod was put in charge. And the Herodians were those who were all part of the political persuasion. So the Pharisees brought them along to see to make sure that they had the witnesses and they were setting, trying to set Jesus up, just so you understand and know that. It says, teacher, we know, and here's what they said to Jesus. Teacher, we know uh, that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully and uh, you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. That's just basically garbage, you know, buttering, trying to butter Jesus up, you know. I know whenever I hear the word esteemed colleague, that usually means I, I don't agree and can't stand that person. Does that make sense? But it's just gobbled, it's political gobbledygook. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's, oh, Jesus, we butter, 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 butter. And then they ask the question. Soften them up first and then see if they won't fall. Here's the thought. All right, continue. Tell us when, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And let me tell you something. That was the question that was going to get Jesus in trouble either way he answered it. You ever been asked something like that? You know, do you still beat your wife kind of thing? And you know what I'm saying. If you say no, then that's saying you used to, but don't anymore. If you say yes, then you're, yeah, so... Yes or no, it doesn't matter. Well, it's the same one here. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Taxes were, were what happened. They were heavy taxes because it was, it was an area of the world that was prone to rebellious and factions. And so Romans kept a large garrison of soldiers in the area. So they had to be paid for. And the way they were paid for was through taxes. So the people hated the occupation. So they hated the taxes. So if Jesus says, yes, it's right to pay taxes, then the people are going to hate him. If he says no, then they got the Herodians there to arrest him for being an insurrectionist against the government. Does that make sense? So it's a catch-22 question. And uh, <laughs> Jesus is too wise for that, and the buttering up didn't help him. And it didn't, didn't, didn't make a difference. Verse 18 says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, he knew what they were doing. The buttering up didn't work. He says, why do you put me to the test? I love that word test. What's another word for test? Examination. Now you see why presentation, examination. These questions are nothing but examinations, tests, to find out who Jesus is. The spotless lamb, for those of you who have ears to hear. So, so why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites, right? Show me the coin for the tax. He said, whose inscription's on it? Whose likeness? And I said, Caesar's. And Jesus just says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What is he saying? He's taking it to a different level. Don't get so wrapped up in money. You, start, you, you give the things to God that are his. That is who you are, your heart, your time. And don't let all these things. I mean, it was just, it was an incredible answer. Incredible answer because it, it, it got it out of the trivial into what things that really mattered. Interesting, huh? 
And so what it says, when they heard it, what did they do? They marveled. They marveled at the teaching of this man. Okay? And they left him and went away. Number three. Number two is taxes, political question. Number three is a spiritual question. It's resurrection. Okay? Resurrection. And take a look at chapter 22, verse 23. It says, that same day, so it's just series of one or another that are coming with questions to trap Jesus. It's a time of examination. It's all that it is. And it says there, the same day the Sadducees came to him. Now, who are the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees, they were religious. Pharisees and Sadducees, Herodians were political. But the Sadducees were the opposite. The Pharisees were much more conservative. Um, they were much more conservative. And when I say conservative, Sadducees were liberal. I'm talking about theologically, not politically like we see the word conservative and, and, and liberal. And so what had happened, although it's similar to today, conservative and liberal theologically, but the Pharisees, and, and notice that Jesus didn't have high praise for either one of them. I mean, it's pretty interesting. Uh, so you can jump on a bandwagon, but you probably get on his wagon, you'll do better. If you have ears to hear, hear that, all right? All right, but the same day, the Sadducees, who were they? They were the theologically liberal. Uh, they were, believe it or not, this is interesting. They were the culturally elite. They were the, the, acad, the academians, academians, however you say it. Sounds like macadamia to me, nuts. But, but they, they were smart, all right? They were highly intelligent. Uh, they had a lot of learning, probably the most learned people of their day. Um, the Sadducees, that's how you got into that club. Wealth, uh, a lot of wealth. Uh, and, and so many of the, of the Sadducees were made up of priests, okay, and the ruling class and the wealthy class and the, and the intelligent class. But through it all, they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. They didn't believe that there were miracles. There were a lot of things they didn't believe. They were more naturalist, more academic, Right? Uh, have to prove it by science kind of thing. And uh, I find it interesting they even wanted to be priests, right? But, um, but that's who they were. So they came to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. And here was the question. There is the question they asked. They said, teacher, uh, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now that may seem, sound a little creepy to you. It is to me. I mean, like marrying your brother's wife. Sounds creepy to me, all right? But it wasn't for the time, and it was definitely necessary. When they came into the promised land, okay, families had inheritances. And to keep single families and single individuals from gaining a monopoly and hoarding all the land for themselves, the year of Jubilee really helped that because it all went back to original owners. But what it did was is that if, if a brother died, then the, another brother would marry the widow. They would have children for the deceased brother so that that inheritance wouldn't just go away. It was actually very good to keep a handful of people from gaining all the wealth. It's pretty amazing at the time. So that's basically what they're saying. I don't have time to talk about how that worked or anything. Let's just take a look at their question. So if a man, then obviously, you know, and now he, there were seven brothers, right? There were seven brothers. And so, so the first brother married married this girl, and he died. So the second brother married her, right? And then he died. And then the third brother, I tell you what, by the third one, I think I'm not marrying that girl. Does that make sense? I was not marrying that girl. All right, now, 
And so basically, the, here's our question. In the third marriage, fourth marriage, fifth marriage, sixth marriage, seventh marriage, okay, they're all, I mean, they need an investigation, okay? But, and then after the seventh one dies, what does it say? Then the woman died. And so they asked this question in the resurrection, therefore, um, of the seven, who, whose wife will she be since they all were married to her? You know, I, again, I don't want to be too ugly here. But have you ever met, I have, I've sat in class, have you ever met some people that are so smart, but they can have the stupidest ideas? And my, I, had a, I had a seminary professor named Dr. Skinner. He taught, he taught Hebrew. It was one of the toughest classes I ever took. And, you know, students are real bad about trying to impress, some are, about trying to impress their, their, their professor by some smart question. But most of the time they come across silly, right? And and Dr. Skinner, whenever somebody would ask a stupid question, this is how he always responded. He would say, he would say, oh, bless your little pointed head. <laughs> and he had such a way about him that nobody got offended. I don't know how he did it, but he did. He was from, he was from middle of nowhere Mississippi, and he had that twang to him. I think it, everybody just was endeared to him. But if Dr. Skinner was there and they asked him the question, that's what he would say to these guys. Oh, bless your little pointed heads. Because Jesus, here's how Jesus answered it, Okay. You're just wrong. You're just wrong. He says you're wrong and you're ignorant, which is not what academic people like to be called. In fact, though, isn't it amazing some of the theories that you see come up have such stupidity to them, and yet everybody listens and almost believes them because they think, well, the person's got to be smart. Just because someone's smart doesn't necessarily know that, that they have the answer because they're trying to explain something through prejudice. Does that make sense? And so they come up with sometimes ridiculous things, but anyway, I've got to move on. It says, basically, you're wrong and you don't know the scriptures, which by the way, they were experts in the scriptures, right? They not only knew all the scriptures, they had most of them memorized. But you know, you can know what the scriptures say without, without understanding them. I've met a lot of people like that. You can know all the stories and not be a believer. So anyway, you're, you're wrong, number one. You don't know the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Basically, he's looking at them and saying that they're, they're not even God's children, even though they have all the knowledge. And he goes on to explain that in the resurrection, you don't marry or are given in marriage. In fact, the scripture talks about being the bride of Christ, the church, which is a whole different relationship, okay? You're not gonna be married or given in marriage, but... I'll all be like the angels in heaven. There's more I could say there, but we got to move on. And then he goes and says, uh, and as to the resurrection of the dead, um, okay, have you not read what, this, what, you know, what was said to you by God? And at the burning bush and at other places, God said that he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look at that. It says there, I am. If you don't happen to know this, am is present tense. Jesus proves the whole point by a verb tense. It's pretty interesting to look at. A verb tense. God said, I am the God of Abraham. Well, when he said, I am the God of Abraham, Abraham was dead. And you can't be the God of a person who's dead and gone forever. Hear what Jesus is saying. So he said, God is the God of the living, not of the dead, right? He's not a God of dead people. He's a God of living. 
So he goes on to say, because they, they were great understanders and believers of the scriptures. So he proved to them with their own scriptures what it says. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. Astonished at his teaching. Number four. And this is where I'm going to be done. This is the greatest command. A lawyer, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, so he just, again, through this time of examination, he just keeps sitting them down, right? He just keeps sitting them down. And they're all huddled up to try to come up with something else. And here's one of the last ones. The Pharisees uh, heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, and they gathered together, and one of them said, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. And he said this, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus didn't even blink. And it's not even part of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jesus said this, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think it says there, in all your heart, soul, and mind. It says loving God, and it says the second socket is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says upon those two, everything hinges. And you know, it's the truth. Love is an incredible thing. I think people talk about it a lot, but very few, I think, ever totally understand it. Love is not what you do. It's what, this is what makes it hard to, to define. Love is, is who you are. Because if you're having marital issues, um, and I, I give you a list of 10 things to do, you can do all 10 of those, but that doesn't mean you love your spouse. Right? That just means you're going through the motions, right? You can serve someone that you don't love, but you cannot love someone that you don't serve. I'll let you write that down and think about it later. Therefore, just because you serve someone doesn't mean you love them. So God's not asking you to serve him. He's asking you to love him. Love, entire, it gives you a relationship. It's a relationship. Loving God. You know, so then what does that look like? Time with a whole lot of things. But love is a, it's an incredible thing because it says there that one, the others like it is love people. Loving God, love people. I don't know about you guys, but people are not easy to love other than those of you in here, <laughs> right? But I found this, but by loving God, it gives you the power and the strength to love people even when they're unlovable. In fact, you can tell you're loving God by your ability to love people. If you can't love people or some people you won't love, then you have to even question if you even love God at all. I know that's a tough thing to hear, but it is the truth. That's why Jesus put the both of them together. Love God, love people. In fact, there are some churches, that's their mission statement, and it's not a bad one. Their, their mission statement is love God, love people. So he's called us to be. It's what Jesus said is the greatest and so after that, Jesus asked them a question, and then it said there, after he asked them a question and stumped them, he said nobody dared ask him any more questions. So examination was over. Presentation, examination. Next week, we talk about Passover. And if you, if you know someone who's not here today who's coming next week, make sure you get them to listen to this. Because I think that taking communion, Lord's Supper, next week, is going to be a new experience next week for a lot of you because you're understanding why we're doing what we're doing, not just what we're doing. So as we, again, through, this, through these weeks, we're going to look at 
what Jesus came to do. So much of it's tied up in Passover. All right? Good stuff. Let's all stand. David, why don't you come and close us? Hey, uh, guest, if you're a guest with us today, I'm heading to the guest receptions right out the doors. You'll see us in there. Please stop by. I'd love to shake your hand. If you're not sure if you're a believer and would like to know what it means, because guys, it's not about joining a church, not about being baptized. It's not about anything. It's about having a relationship that was made possible because of who Jesus is, what he came to do. If you'd like to know more about that, there'll be some people up here to talk to you, or you can pick up, um, you can pick up, you can pick up one of these if you don't want to talk to anybody. I did a message one time that just explains, again, more of who Christ is, what he came to do. You'll find these in the lobby, no cost. You can grab one on your way out. All right, God bless you guys, and, uh, and you have a great week. We'll see you next week. All right, David, why don't you close us?